scripture reading will be from Psalm 8 this morning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at, the hev- at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Good morning. I want to welcome all of our visitors here today. We have a lot of regular members here gone, so um, visitors are always welcome, but you're especially welcome today. Um, hope you'll come back and, and be with us. Um, we have been in 2020 uh, focusing as a church on the theme of worship. You can see that back here on these um, banners on our website throughout the church building here. Um, coming to love uh, the God who, uh, who first loved us, to use the language of, of 1 John 4. <clears throat> and I want to, over the next uh, few weeks, uh, preaching in March, think about how we can become better at uh, expressing and manifesting this worshipful attitude and demeanor um, Psalm 29.2 tells us to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. A certain amount of glory or uh, weight or importance should attach to the name of Yahweh, our Lord, our God, Jesus, the ultimate uh, manifestation of our God. And we're to ascribe to the Lord that glory. We're not to sit on it. We're not to you know, disregard it. It's something that we should attach to God. Uh, and, and this amounts to, as you can see here, worshiping. There's a, it's kind of a parallel, you know, called Hebrew parallelism. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do His name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, our text for today is going to be um, Psalm 8. And <clears throat> I know Psalm 8 doesn't use this phrase, it's from Psalm 29 too, but I think Psalm 8 is one of many efforts in the Psalms to extol the, the glory of and uh, ex- uh, just uh, you know, exalt in the glory of God. And this is a good example of uh, giving to God the glory due His name. And Psalm 8 is a psalm by King David that was dedicated to this very purpose, the very purpose of acknowledging the glory or the majesty of God. And you can see that in the way the psalm itself is framed. So here's Psalm uh, 8, and the very beginning and very ending uh, statements in this psalm are just replications of each other. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the opening verse. And then the closing verse of the psalm is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how glorious, how splendid is your name in all the earth. Same thing. So the the psalm is framed by this idea. That tells you something. This is called an inclusio. It's like two bookends. It's often a device used structurally in biblical writings. And it gives us the point. Everything that is said in the psalm is framed by this idea of Yahweh, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, O Lord, who is our Lord, 
uh, just expressing his, his majesty, and, it, and it, it just goes throughout all of the earth. So that's what this psalm is about. And so today we're going to take Psalm 8 as our, as our cue, as our jumping off point, and I want to suggest to you three ways that this psalm suggests we can glorify God. And we'll be looking at this idea of how we can better glorify God, worship God, uh, and, and things that uh, help us see that glory, um, maybe most especially in the created world around us, but not limited to that, as we'll see in subsequent, subsequent lessons. Okay, so let's, let's just jump right in to this. The first way that we see in Psalm 8 that we can glorify God is to see God's glory in creation. To see God's glory in creation, in nature, in the created things around us. Everything from uh, the stars, which he's going to mention here in a second, uh, down to you know, things that are happening at the, you know, uh, uh, at, the, at the microbial level. I mean, there are, there are wonders at the subatomic level that in many ways um, seem to mimic things at, at macro levels. And everything from you know, uh, the birth of a baby, the food we eat, um, people that you know, um, you know, the trees that are beginning to, are, are shortly going to begin to leaf out, you know, um, we were on a walk the other day and there's little maple trees up and down our neighborhood and they're all budding out and, and I said to Sheree, it'd just be a few weeks and we'll have little propellers everywhere, you know, those little maple things. Um, anyway, see God's glory in creation. So look what he says here in Psalm 8, verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory is in the heavens and he repeats this idea in verse 3, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, not just his hands. Notice that? This is really specific things God's doing. This is fine motor. Uh, you know, obviously this is anthropomorphic. He's acknowledging kind of a, or giving God these human traits so we can understand it. And he's accommodating our, our finite human perspective. But still, this is something that God in his masterful skill has designed. Moon, stars, all the heavenly bodies that he has set in place. And so um, I, I'm thinking of, you know, of Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, who wrote this, this famous work called the, the, the Principia, um, where he laid down these mathematical principles that explain uh, the heavenly bodies, at least the ones that we're, we can see, you know, our solar system and so on, and comets that appear occasionally. And he laid down these mathematical principles, this is called laws of motion, that explain the movements of the heavenly bodies, like the mechanics behind that. Um, and Newton was a, a very devout, sometimes eccentric, but a very devout believer, like most of the so-called fathers of the scientific revolution were. And Newton actually wrote way more words of theology than he did science, or natural philosophy, as he would have said then. Um, but here's something he said once. He said, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the council and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. And, and so, you know, he just um, was in awe, as probably you have been before looking up at the heavens. I remember as a kid going out to West Texas, where I was born and where my, my mom and dad met, and um, going out to this little town of Pecos. We were actually on a ranch that my dad at one point owned with this other man. And me and my dad and the, 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 the boys were all spending the night out there, kind of like camping, but we were in a, we were in a trailer. But... There, there, was no, there was not much natural light there at all. I've never seen that many stars in my life. Plus, it's got drier air, I'm sure. It was, it was almost New Mexico. Um, so for whatever reason, and I wasn't from like some metropolis, but you know, there were street lights everywhere and all that. And I just wonder like what, what David saw when he looked at this, you know, in the ancient world, how, much, how dark was night. Um, 
know if you've ever seen those light pollution maps, but um, I can see about four stars where I live now, honestly, on a good night. I'm like, oh, that's three or four. Part of that's that, you know, my vision probably. You're like, no, there's a lot more than that. But um, it, just, just imagine all of the, the awe that all the people throughout the history of the world have have uh, appreciated because of, of what God has done in the, in the heavens. And it's not just the heavens. The creation has got a, a, a huge capacity to induce wonder everywhere you look. I want to... Um, Isaac Newton became famous in his own day. He had a, like a royal burial and all this stuff. Um, very, very celebrated in his own lifetime. And he said near the end of his life, I have merely been like a boy playing on a seashore diverting myself now and then with a smoother pebble or prettier shell than the ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay undiscovered all around me. In other words, I've only begun to dabble. Um, I don't know what that means for the rest of us. Quite a dabbler. Um, he just explained uh, how, you know, heavenly bodies move. And kind of important. I mean, at least for our part of the, our neck of the universe. Einstein had to adjust it later. But anyway, um, Think of the capacity that creation has. So I, I listened to this podcast uh, a couple months ago that my brother-in-law um, uh, kind of turned me on to. It's from Late Radio Lab. You could, I, I would recommend you listen to it. It's called From Tree to Shining Tree. Very nerdy about botany, but it's very, very cool too. And it, it talks about, I'm just going to explain this real quick, because I think it's one of the areas where creation just redounds to the glory of God. You know, things we take for granted. So you're walking through the woods and, you know, trees like that, maybe not quite that big, but, you know, around here anyway. But trees are everywhere, and, and below them, there, of course, is soil, and they're growing out of the soil. Well, uh, the soil is, is full of these, these fungi um, that um, are all throughout all soil. And this podcast is about the relationship, ultimately, between trees and these uh, fungi that you can barely see at all. They're, they're little tiny. If you take a, a, a clump of soil up and you look with a magnifying glass, it's filled with these tiny little white threads that are about one-tenth the width of your eyelash, of a single eyelash. So they're verging on microscopic. I mean, maybe you could say they even are because you've got to use a magnifying glass to see them. But one spoonful of dirt has about seven miles of those little white threads, a spoonful. Uh, and it turns out those little white threads are fungi. They're not just junk. Nothing's ever just junk. There's junk in there. You know, it's actually fungi. And fungi, by the way, are, 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 have a DNA that's closer to animals than plants. So that, that's, that's interesting itself. Um, under the microscope, it turns out that those little white threads are actually hollow tubes. This is like a gigantic plumbing system in the dirt. So trees are growing up out of that soil, all shapes and all sizes. Some are, you know, uh, thick and rigid, you know, a 300-year-old oak tree. It's like a rock sitting there. Some are hundreds of feet tall, like the, the redwoods out in California. Um, and all these trees, whatever kind of tree, they're all taking carbon out of, out of you know, CO2, out of carbon dioxide, and they're, they're, they're getting that out of the air, and they're turning that carbon into, into food, into a kind of sugar for themselves, and that's what they use to construct uh, their bodies. You know, they're making their trunks and their branches and so on. But if all the trees had were carbon that they got out of the CO2 in the air, they'd only be about the height of a tulip. I didn't know this. 
And they've got you know, experts on there saying all these things. Like they'd get about that high, and, then, and they'd also be really floppy. All the trees. Can you imagine the great redwoods of coastal, coastal redwoods of Northwest California? This, the, who would visit? I mean, you're like, watch out, don't step on it. You know. um, to get the firm, tall structure we know as a tree, they have to have minerals, kind of liquid rock, you might say. Things like copper, magnesium, phosphorus, calcium, on and on, nitrogen, on and on and on. And so they can't get their structure, the woody, hard, rock-like structure they get without getting those nutrients. But the tree only has a limited ability to get that. So we think, well, they get it through the roots. Not really, a little bit, but they're not very efficient on their own, it turns out. They would never get all they needed to look like a tree if they're relying on their own roots. And here's where it, re where it really gets interesting and cool and weird, really. Um, here's where the fungus come in, those little white tubes that are just all over, you know, all throughout the dirt. This network of tiny tubes picks up minerals in the soil and it gives them to the trees. So it's siphoning up this nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium, copper, magnesium, nitrogen, and taking it to the tree. The tree couldn't do it on its own. But that's not all. It's not, a, it's not just a gift. You know, this is a business deal. There's a transaction. What does a fungus get out of it? Well, the tree gives the fungus a lot of that sugar it makes from the carbon it gets from the earth because the, fun the fungus can't do photosynthesis and get carbon out of the air. So it needs to build its bodies and it needs the sugar that it can only get from the trees. And so the upshot is, picture the whole underground world below your feet when you're walking in the woods, below the roots of the trees and all around the roots of the trees is a giant marketplace, a giant, it's New York City. And, and you've got this whole underground world of trade going on between our, beneath our feet. And even more amazing than that, these fungal tubes will reach up toward the tree's roots and communicate in a kind of chemical language that basically says, hey, I'm in the, I'm in the area. Will you soften your roots up so that I can invade your root system? And the tree can turn that off or on. And often it turns it on, it gets the message, says, yes, I can do that. And so an exchange happens, and the fungus thrives, and the trees thrive, and that's all going on in dirt. And people are like, wash your hands, you've got dirt on them. No, dirt's like the most coolest thing in the world. You know? Anyway, that's, that's too long. But that's a, one of many illustrations of, of how creation gives us ways to glorify God all the time. We, we're just too busy to notice. We'll talk more about that next week um, a little bit. Let me suggest to you a quote I read from this little book by Paul David Tripp called Awe. He uses an interesting term here, a term called, that he makes up. People get onto me for making up words. How about this word, glory scope? <laughs> God has designed the world, Tripp writes, in which we live to be a glory scope. A glory scope. What does this term mean? Well, just as a telescope points you to the stars and magnifies them for you to see their illuminating glory, so the earth focuses our eyes on God and magnifies His glory so it can produce wonder in us. Every beautiful and amazing sight, sound, color, texture, taste, and touch of the created world has gloryscopic, I missed the C there, intention built into it. Everything exists for a grand vertical purpose. It points to God. The glories of the physical world don't reflect God's glory by happen chance. 
No, God specifically and carefully designed the physical world to reflect him, that is, to be the glory scope that our poorly seeing eyes so desperately need. As the technician grinds the lens of the telescope for the best clarity and magnification possible, so God fashioned his world in such a way that it would bring his glory into view. God created every fish, stone, flower, bird, cloud, tree, monkey, and leaf to be gloryscopic because our loving creator knows how fundamentally blind we can be. And what he says is, in the book, we're all blind amnesiacs, essentially. We forget how awesome God is, how beautiful God is, how wonder-inspiring uh, and inducing God is. And um, because of that, we replace him with idols. So our fundamental problem is that we're not in awe of God. And guess what? One of the main ways the Bible says we get awe about God is nature. Over and over and over. Jesus says, look at these things. Look at that. Check this out, the psalmist says. These show us the glory of God. So, we should learn to see, to appreciate this as much as possible. And, and I said on this, uh, we're going to have more next week. But, considering the grandeur of nature isn't only a means to learn about God, it also makes us think more carefully about ourselves. Look here at verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 8. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The word for man there is the word enosh, which means mortal. And the word for man and son of man is the word Adam, Adam's name, which means not male, but humanity. Remember, in the image of God created he... He created man, humanity. Male and female created he them. There's a different Hebrew word for male. This is just humanity. Right, but what, what are humans, he's saying? So looking at the stars and seeing the glory of God in the heavens makes the psalmist think about humanity. And so that's kind of what our next point is about. Um, is it really true that the one who made the stars is mindful of puny human beings? That this being with cosmic know-how, cosmic power, actually cares about little old me and you. Could, could that really be true? Second way we glorify God is to live as God's image bearers in creation. To live as God's image bearers in the creation he made. We're to see his glory in creation, but we're to live as the bearers of his image out in this creation. Now, as the next few verses of Psalm 8 show us, this glory isn't just in the heavens, it's also in humans. Okay? Not just in the heavens, but in humans. Look at verse 5. He says, yet, for all this, these wonderful things you've done in the heavens, you have made humanity, the son of man, the son of Adam, a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory. Same word. So there's glory up in the heavens, but you've crowned humanity with glory and honor. These are God words. God's the one who has in the Bible glory and honor. But God doesn't just hold that to himself and hoard the glory and honor. Instead, he takes a part of his creation, humanity, and gives that part of his creation some of his own glory. So humans are part of creation. I mean, as I said, we, have, we share a lot of DNA with fungus. Sorry. You in a mushroom, not as different as you think, you know? Um, good thing I picked mu mushroom as my 
example. There's, there's less uh, attractive funguses, fungi, I could have used. So you, thank you. I mean, I'm sorry, you're welcome. Um, anyway, um, not in my notes. I'm going off, off the reservation here. Um, so we're, we're a very special part of creation. We're part of creation, but a very special part of creation because of the fact that God has given us glory and honor and made us just a little lower than um, the heavenly beings. Now, notice this verse, verse 5, very important. This is the ESV on the screen, English Standard Version. It renders it um, heavenly beings. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some versions follow this uh, very influential Greek translation of the scriptures, of the Old Testament scriptures, um, called the Septuagint, because there were roughly 70 uh, uh, Greek-speaking Jews a couple of centuries before Christ who did the translating. And this is the main Bible that Paul and Jesus re refer to. When they quote the Old Testament, they're quoting that version. Makes sense since Greek was the lingua franca of the eastern part of the Mediterranean, where Palestine was. Okay? But the Septuagint uses the word angels. And the King James in 1611 followed the Septuagint and put angels, and so did the NIV. That's not what most of our versions say, but these still do. Um, what word is it? Well, in the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. You've probably heard that word before. It's the word for God. This is the plural, so gods. It's the divine. Not human, but divine. The gods, God. All over the Old Testament. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. That's this word. So why isn't it just translated God? We're, why aren't we made a little lower than the gods or divinity or God? Well, actually, the Old American Standard and the New American Standard do render it that way, as does the New Living Translation. A bunch of them do, with good reason. That's what the word means you know, everywhere else in the Old Testament. Now, it had a semantic range. It's, you know, it was used of pagan gods, too. It's just the realm of the, not the realm of the divine, but divine beings. Okay? Gods. And every ancient person, you know, had this belief in divinity of some sort. The gods or God. If you were a, a Jewish person, it was monotheism. Anyway, so that's what he's saying. Humans, we, are created, but we're at the top of creation. We're just a little, we're kind of on the cusp of the divine and the earthly. We're just a little lower than God. We've got some of God's glory in us. We're just a little lower than God. And I think that's the, the point here, is that we share something of God's nature. He's gifted us with some of His divine glory. He has crowned us with glory and honor as these beings made just a little lower than He is. Another way to put this, to use the language of Genesis 1, is to say that we're made in God's image, right? Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, this is the very first thing said about human beings in the Bible. Okay? You want to say, what's a human being? What does it mean to be human? What's your view of what, it, what life is about? Why are we here? What's our trajectory? Where are we headed? You know, what does it mean to be a, a man or a woman, a person? Well, we ought to start with Genesis, and the first clue we have in the Bible is Genesis 1, 26-28. That's probably disproportionately important, wouldn't you say? Here's the first statement after he makes them. Here's what you're for. Here's who you are. 
And here's what he says. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So there's something about us. Even though we are 90-whatever percent the same as a chimpanzee DNA, that 3 or 4 or 5 or 8 or whatever the difference is, percentage is pretty different. <laughs> it's pretty important. Because we are made in God's image. We're His image bearers. Now, in the context of Genesis 1, bearing God's image is connected to being given a divine commission. Listen to this, because I think a lot of us grow up not, not, a lot of Christians grow up not even noticing this. It's actually all over the Bible. And it's the very first thing said about humans. We talked about this in our grand story of the Bible uh, survey class that 13-week quarter a, a year ago or two years, I don't remember when, uh, a while back. So we're given a vocation, a job. A purpose, a commission. We often talk about the Great Commission. Well, this is a commission. It's pretty great, too, because it's, it's the paradigmatic one. It's the one that humans are designed for. And here it is. And I want you to notice, first of all, how similar the language is. Psalm 8 is just riffing off of Genesis 1, 26-28. It's using the same language. There's no chance this isn't referring back to that. This is why this is often called a creation psalm. So look at uh, Psalm 8, verse 6, and, 6 through 8, and then I'll show you the Genesis passage that's parallel from Genesis 1. The psalmist says here, You have given him, that is humanity, dominion. Remember that word. Dominion or rule or reign, it can be translated, over the works of your hand, over creation. So every, the, the fish don't have that. They're part of creation. Apes don't have that. They're part of creation. Trees don't have that. They're part of creation. But this part of creation, you and I, have this thing called dominion over the rest of it. You've put, and then he details it, you've put all, um, all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths. All the rest of creation, basically, has been put under the subjection, under the dominion, under the rule of his human creation. Now, Look how parallel this is to Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Again, the very first thing we read about human beings in the Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1, 26, after our likeness. Let them, remember he's already said, male and female created he them. So men and women image forth God in the creation. We're, we're both Adam, right? Let us make Adam, male and female created he them. He says right after that. Well, God says after creating us in his image, let them have, let us have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is exactly what Psalm 8 says. So Psalm 8 is just harking back to Genesis 1 and the very initial creative purpose that God gave human beings. If I were to ask you, what does it made to be, mean to be made in the image of God? We'd probably speculate and say all kinds of things. And they might be, have touches, you know, elements of truth in them biblically. But we could just start with Genesis 1 where he actually says we're made in the image of God. And he says what that is. He says it's to do this. God had dominion over all the creation. In the beginning, there was, you know, the earth was formless and void. And God spoke. And it's filled with all these things. And he's the one who rules it. He has dominion. He has honor and glory. And he, he has uh, control over it. And then he shares some of that dominion with us. So being made in the image of God in, according to, in the language of Genesis 1 is, is being made to share the dominion God has over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the livestock, and every creeping thing, basically to be um, a co-ruler with God, you might say, to reign with Him 
over this created order. All right? That's the very first thing said about human beings. And so it's got to be regarded as a big part of our purpose in the world. A lot of whether you're a good person or a bad person, whether you're following, whether you're being godly or ungodly, has to do with how you relate, how you interact with creation. Now, don't take that just in an ecological or environmental sense. I think that's included. But every part of creation, what, what do you ever do that doesn't involve some part of creation? That person's mean. How, how so? They threw a punch at me. What did they use? Their fist, which is made of what? Calcium. It doesn't matter what you, what you want to... That meal was awful. It was, it was, they, they didn't even pay attention to the food hygiene, and I got food poisoning. What, what happened? Did you ingest something? Yeah, I ate something. What, what was it? Well, it was broccoli. Well, what's broccoli composed of? Money. Everything is stuff. We're not disembodied spirits. We, we display righteousness or unrighteousness vis-a-vis some aspect of the creation created world. You can say, well, what if I'm just sitting along having a meditative thought? You're using your brain. Cut the circulation to your brain and see how long that works. What is, what is blood? Hemoglobin carries oxygen, O2, part of the... I mean, it all, everything's creation. So it makes sense that he would say, here's who you are, made in my image. It's vis-a-vis creation. And we are supposed to have dominion over that. Now, we need to be clear on the nature of this dominion. Because this passage has often been misused in the history of humans' involvement with the, the, the rest of the created order. We're to imitate God's dominion, which is a very benevolent, loving dominion. God gives. He sustains. Half the Psalms are about how He's taking care of the cattle on a thousand hills, right? He's feeding the lions, and uh, He's causing the lightning, and everything is, is God is doing for the good of creation in a loving, self-giving way. And, and we share His glory and honor. We share His, we're, we're regents with Him over creation means we should imitate his relationship to creation. It should be a benevolent dominion. This does not mean exploitation. Here's a writer uh, named William Edgar, and I use this book a lot back when I was teaching that class on the grand story of the Bible. This is a theology of culture, basically. It's called Created and Creating. Read this with me. He's talking about this text. We just uh, looked on, uh, on, on the screen. Genesis 1, the end of the chapter. Although the finished creation was good and very good, that's what Genesis 1 says, right? And it was good after day 1, day 2, day 3, and so on. After, day, after creating humanity, it was very good. Although that was true, ruling and subduing, meaning having dominion, were still a necessary part of directing the history of the world. Why? You ever thought about that? What needs still to be done? What is yet to be done if, he, if the world's good and very good? I don't think we should read that as perfect in the sense of, it's perfect in the sense that it's what God wanted, but it's not complete. Otherwise, why create humans to have dominion over it? So he says, at the most elementary level, tilling the earth and accepting God's gifts of plants, trees, and animals requires labor and wisdom. At the broader level, humanity was called to spread the blessings of Eden to all the earth. Embedded in this human activity, at least in germ form, is the development of agriculture, the arts, economics, family dynamics, and everything that contributes to human flourishing to the glory of God. This management is, of course, an imitation of God's greater stewardship over His creation. Now look at this. You know that Genesis 2 is, an, is a separate creation story. I mean, they're both in Holy Spirit-inspired. They're both true. But Genesis 2 is very different than Genesis 1. The order isn't even the same. 
So people say, you got to take Genesis 1 literally. I'm like, well, what about Genesis 2? That's a side point. Is it trying to be like a science statement? If so, Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 are in some tension. One of the things is, after the six days of creation of Genesis 1, you have all the plants, right? All of them. Look at Genesis 2. Starts off in verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created. And the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In other words, it's complete. This is what it looks like when God's finished. Verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. What? I thought one said it was all there. Well, it did. But this is a different way, different take on it. It's making different kinds of points theologically. I think we bring a lot of modern assumptions to our reading of Genesis 1 and 2 sometimes. Instead of letting the ancient Near Eastern Hebrew context... Uh, and the context of Genesis itself dictate that. Look what it says. There, was no, there weren't these shrubs in the field yet. No small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain. And notice this. What else did it need? There was no man to work the ground. So creation wasn't really complete. It's like a man who starts a business and gets it going and then says to his son, I left a lot for you to do because I want you to have the joy of this vocation. We're going to go into this market, too. We're going to spread out and start doing that, too. Come on. I'll give you some of my authority, some of my power, some of my dominion. God loves us that much. And look here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. These are interesting Hebrew verbs. The word keep, shamar, has a broad semantic range. It can mean to observe and to learn from. Like, check out creation. That's kind of what Psalm 8 is saying. Look at the heavens. But it also has the, 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 the nuance of, of, of uh, preserve and protect. Some versions translate this guard. So this isn't license. The human dominion with creation isn't license to exploit it. It's kind of the opposite. You're to guard it. You're to nurture it, cultivate it. And that's what the word work is more like. The word abad in Hebrew is to serve it or to cultivate it. You're its servant, actually. Just like God does many things to serve the needs of the created world, He makes it rain on the just and the unjust. Book of Acts says. We have a similar relation. He has given us part of that glory and honor and dominion to be co-regents with Him. Psalm 8 is evoking, um, invoking, all of that from the Genesis 1 statement, the earliest statement in the Bible of what a human being is vis-a-vis -vis God, his creator, and vis-a-vis -vis the creation in which he was placed and was part of. Now, the problem is we didn't execute our commission very faithfully. We still don't execute our commission very faithfully. We botch it. Rather than presiding over creation as a loving caretaker in imitation of God, we've exploited creation. And again, don't think too narrowly about trees in your backyard or just economics or environmental stuff. Use the, the broad range of creation in the biblical sense. Everything that you involve yourself with 24-7 is some aspect of the created order. From your pickup truck to your wife to your kids to strangers you meet on the street and how you interact with them, to food, to, you know, everything is created or a reshaping of something created. And basically, instead of loving creation selflessly and serving it and preserving it and helping it thrive and cultivating it, 
because of egotistical, selfish, and unloving ends, we've often exploited it. So that would include things like environmental exploitation, but it also in involves exploitation of other people, their creation. So every time somebody lusts after somebody, every time, every time a man objectifies a woman, how many times does that happened in human history? Every time marriage partners are selfish instead of selfless, every time somebody is materialistic, that's a problem with the created order, isn't it? Every time somebody forges an instrument for the perpetration of violence, you know, when we, when we make swords rather than plowshares, which has happened a billion times in human history, all of that is a distorted relationship with creation. We are exploiting, not serving and cultivating and blessing like God does. And so we're in a pickle. All we've botched is the whole purpose of our existence. According to Genesis 1, 26, 28, the, the very first paradigmatic statement of what a human is. That's it. No biggie. So the third thing is, we've got to embrace God's Son in anticipation of a new creation. We've got to cling to the Son. Now did Psalm, somebody's going, that's true, but does Psalm 8 talk about that? Real quickly. The New Testament quotes Psalm 8 in connection with Jesus several times, actually. I don't know that we would ever have thought of Jesus reading Psalm 8 had the New Testament writers not done that for us, but they do do that. And the longest quotation of, of, the, of, of Psalm 8 is in Hebrews 2. Now, Hebrews 2, in context, is talking about Jesus' superiority to the angels. Remember that? It's kind of an arcane point to us, but evidently there were a lot of Jewish believers who were stuck on the fact that because the angels attended the giving of the law of Moses, that they were superior. And one of the arguments of the writer of Hebrews is, no, Jesus is actually supreme. He's superior to everything, including the angels. That's kind of Genesis, uh, Hebrews 1 and 2, or much of it. So that's the context. We're jumping into the middle of another context. But Hebrews puts a, a new, is putting a new twist on Psalm 8. And I want you to see this here. You see different things in the way the New Testament uses Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus than we had seen the way we've been using Psalm 8 up to this point in the lesson, which I think most people would have used it that way. It doesn't announce Jesus of Nazareth, you know, millennia before he's born. But notice how... There's a switcheroo going on here. In the New Testament usage of Psalm 8, at least in Hebrews 2, Jesus has replaced general humanity as the focus. Jesus is standing in for all human beings now. So He is the Son of Man. I've read, I haven't verified this myself, that nobody ever calls Jesus Son of Man. They call Him a lot of things in the, in the four Gospels. He calls himself son of man a lot. That's interesting. And so here in this text, it doesn't just mean you and I. He's the ultimate son of Adam. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care from him? Because look, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, verse 5, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and now quoting Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him? Now think Jesus. That's what, he, that's what the context is. What is Jesus that you're mindful of him? Jesus, the son of man, that you care for him. You made Jesus a little lower than the angels for a time. He became a human. Lower even than the angels. 
You've crowned Him with glory and honor. You've put everything in subjection under His feet. Now it's all Jesus. It was just humanity in Psalm 8. But now it's being given a Christological, you know, a cross-shaped, a Jesus twist, like the New Testament always uses the Old Testament. I want you to notice one other thing. He's crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But how did He get this crown? By what means did He get this honor? Verse 9 says, But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Remember in John, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, When I am lifted up, I'll be glorified, I'll draw all men to me. He connects the word glorification, glory, with crucifixion. If you had looked at a New Testament lexicon, or New Testament era lexicon, and wanted to look at a word that was opposite of glory, it would be cross. And yet this is saying, and the gospel is saying, that Jesus got his honor and his glory by dying to self. And so this emblem which had signified disgrace and shame has become Christ's path to glory and honor. But he didn't do that just for himself. Verse 9, the second half of the verse says, so that by grace, of the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He knew that through this means God would place him over what Hebrews 2.5 calls the world to come. You notice that? There's a whole other world coming. Hebrews just sort of just flips off of his mouth, off his pen, like, nobody, like of course you know that. Well, they know all the, the Isaiah uh, you know, passages about the new heavens and new earth and all that. We may have forgotten them. I guarantee you Jewish readers didn't. There's this world coming. It's a different world where lions lie down with lambs, where there's no death or crying or mourning, where the tree of life is, is, is there and accessible finally, and the curse is no longer. This comes out of the Old Testament. So they're expecting this world to come, and Jesus will preside over this world, Hebrews 2 is arguing. And not only that, he's going to take us with him. Look at this. Did that too soon. It was not to angels that God would subject the world to come of which we're speaking. And then he says down in verse 10, it was fitting that he, for whom and uh, and, and by whom all things exist, Jesus, in bringing many sons. He's the son of Psalm 8, but so are we. And he's going to take us with him, take us to glory. But to do so, he, the founder of our salvation, had to be perfected through suffering. Now, I want to close with, with reminding you of the image we read in Revelation 21 and 22. Because in Revelation 21 and 22, what we get is a fuller picture of this new world to come. I don't know what else to call it. It uses the language of worlds. What does Revelation 21:1 say? Behold, I saw a new heaven and new earth. It's Genesis language with the word new put in front of it. Exactly the same language. And you get everything that's in the Garden of Eden, except the curse is no longer. Right? A coming new world. And John has a vision of it at the end of Revelation in chapter 21 and 22. And in that fuller picture of this new world to come, Christ's followers will be with him in this new heavens and new earth. First promised way back in Old Testament prophets like Isaiah. And here we will at last fulfill our original purpose. To reign. To reign. To have dominion with God over His good creation. So just like our very first biblical glimpse of humanity talked about our reigning over creation and having dominion, guess what the last statement about humans in the whole Bible says? Revelation 22, 5, they will reign with Him forevermore. 
Same word. We will have dominion, which is what God originally said we should have done, which we botched. Jesus has restored it. In this new world to come, we will reign with Him forevermore. And we will do so in a world so powerful, so, I mean, so wonderful, so pervaded by the glory of God. That the glory of God, not a sun or a moon or a heavenly body, the glory of God will illuminate that world. Isn't that amazing? All right, thank you for your attention today. Next week I want to talk more about ways we can become more sensitive to, more alert to the glory of God in the created world because that's what we're pointed to by biblical writers over and over again. It would be a real shame if we lost the ability as human beings or a culture or a society to notice that. Wouldn't it? I don't care how busy you are. Um, it's our loss if we concrete over everything and we can't see it anymore, honestly. It's our loss if we're so busy we don't even notice what the trees and the soil... I mean, we're told by Bible writers, look at these things and you'll see my glory. So I want, to talk, I want to unpack that even a bit more next week. Hope you'll come back. Thank you for your attention today. Um, if we can help you in some way, let us know by coming to one of these center uh, chairs in the circle in the middle as together we all stand and sing.